You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. The South Carolina primary was set up with one thing in mind. In the end, you break everybody's back. The debate's starting to liven up a little. I thought it was going to die on the vine, but in any event... Don't cry about what you don't have. Use what you got. See me for what I am. The Republican candidate for president of the United States. <laughs> Mike Dukakis and Paul Simon have been attacking Dick Gephardt. I'm Pete Dupont. There is a solution. We went for the gold and we won it. We filled this tent with 10,000 hungry mosquitoes and biting flies. But they're not biting me. I love tortilla chips, but they can be a little... Yeah. I'm using Deep Woods Off. These are all nice fellows. I know I can get, you know, they're all, I know them all, and they all made mistakes. The people of the country want to, want to find out about issues like economic revitalization and opportunity for the future. Now there's news that Gerald. That's what I'm prepared to talk about. Reagan won Pennsylvania by the margin of despair. The biggest tax raisers in Massachusetts history. Deep Woods Off. I want to express my deep appreciation to Senator Dole. Because it's your fight, too. Why do you think there are still questions being asked about this? <laughs> but we also know there's a problem on the horizon. Maybe it's because what gets, that's what gets reported. What do you mean? For a better America, for an endless, enduring dream, and a thousand points of light. Your time has come. Pick up your slingshot. Pick up your rock. My whole vision of the world is in terms of analogies and word pictures. And I looked at it. I looked at this race and I said, if you imagine an invisible circle, to be seriously considered president of the United States, you have to get in that circle. And being in that circle, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to be president. For instance, Rockefeller, I think, was a guy who got in that circle. Hubert Humphrey got in that circle, but he wasn't going to be president. But getting in that circle, that invisible circle, is critical. For Lee Atwater, the 1988 election was strange. He had been a key Reagan campaign consultant, and Reagan was his guy. People like Strom Thurmond, that was his person. Somebody like a Bob Dole, actually, personality-wise, would match Lee Atwater a little better than the candidate that he was employed by. George H.W. Bush, a little more of a patrician. The word out there was, the guy's a wimp. In some circles, that he had to fight off that image. Not the kind of scrappy candidate that he liked. But my job, he said in non-family language, I had to make chicken salad out of chicken, well, something else. 
So we started our race pre-primary in which our candidate was the only candidate in either party, I think Republican or Democrat, that was in that circle. But there were a couple of other guys hovering around. Bob Dole, I think, was hovering around. Jerry Hart was hovering around. If you look at that circle as a little boat that we were in, and out in the water there were a hell of a lot of shark fins, 13 or 14 shark fins, however many candidates that there were, and the whole name of the game was getting your boat to the other side and beating back those shark fins to keep everybody else out of the boat with you. Dole and Bush were now facing off. Bush had won New Hampshire. Dole had won Iowa. They're going to the South, collection of states that are going to vote on Super Tuesday, and neither one of them has that locked up, has the the mind of the South locked up, no matter how much Lee Atwater might wish it be so. In the campaign schedule, thanks to a change made by South Carolina in 1980, there was a South Carolina primary. And here, Atwater knew the Bush campaign had its best chance to win the thing. The governor, Carol Campbell, was a client of Lee Atwater's and an ally for Bush. Dole had thought about skipping it, telling the press, like, well, I'm not contesting South Carolina, I'll move on to the other races. He's got the governor. But then, Senator Strom Thurmond, Atwater's friend, endorses Bob Dole, not George Bush. Now, with, with Strom Thurmond, the senator, endorsing his majority leader, Bob Dole, first of all, Dole's got a campaign, and second of all, he might have a chance here. You have other candidates that are still in this race. Jack Kemp, former quarterback for the Buffalo Bills, tax cut proponent, he goes nuts. He says, South Carolina's it. I'm going to spend everything I have, $30,000. We saw what Gephardt did in South Dakota. I'm going to do that here. I'm not going to beat anyone. I'm not going to come in number one, but I'm going to try to come in number two. Pat Robertson, the TV evangelist, there's a huge amount, 700 club viewers in this state. I think I can compete. So George Bush decides to play off that strength that Pat Robertson has. He appears before two dozen evangelical preachers and says, Jesus Jesus Christ Christ is my my personal savior. As Jules Whitcover and Jack Germond noted, it may have sounded a little strange coming from an Episcopalian from Connecticut, but it played well. That and voters wanting to start to see a nominee in the, in the fall. This is always going to happen in races. Candidates not only run against each other, but they run against the apathy of the party for a long campaign. People, voters, want to see things wrapped up. They don't like chaos at a certain point. And that's what you're seeing as we get to South Carolina 88. It's like, okay, it's going to be Bush or Dole. Somebody's got to decide. And people thinking like that are favoring the vice president. All this adds up to Bush getting 48% of the vote in South Carolina. While the other three, Dole, Kemp, and Pat Robertson, split it. What happened here Was it Bush's reach out to South Carolina evangelicals? Was it the fact that Kemp ran hard, which cut into Dole's support? Or is it all the above? Was it the governor, you know, a governor of a state, state uh, political organizations tend to be more responsive to a governor than to a senator? All of these things combined. Here's from Brutal Campaign, a book that I like by Robert Flieger. 
In the end, Bush won a resounding victory, carrying every county in South Carolina while garnering 49% of the vote. Dole managed to edge out Robertson for a second-plate finish by a margin of 21-19. A Dole campaign manager said, We should have taken a walk out of South Carolina to just let Bush win and set expectations that way. Robertson was toast because he only won one-third of evangelical voters. Even after the New Hampshire primary, Bush had been worried. But when he won South Carolina, the tension and sleeplessness seemed to have gone away. Here's what Lee Atwater says. The South Carolina primary was set up with one thing in mind. In the end, you break everybody's back. But Dole wasn't hearing it. He did not give up. He runs that campaign ad that he never got a chance to run in New Hampshire, that he didn't want to run a negative ad, the one about no footprints in the snow. Bush has a resume, not a record, all of this stuff. The polls show that Bush can't win in November. I'm more electable. And then he goes directly on the offensive, on the Iran-Contra story. Right now, about the only thing that's going to dislodge Bush's position is if something happens here on Iran-Contra. To some extent, Bush had inoculated himself after Dan Rather went after him on this story. Level with the country, Mr. Vice President. It wasn't reaching voters, but it was sure reaching Bush. Bush said of Dole in his diary, He's a desperate and mean man, and people say it. Senator Jake Garn of Utah, one of the few senators that endorsed Bush and not his own majority leader, walked by on the Senate floor, dull muttered, Judas. Gary Hart was enjoying this new campaign, advisor-free, press-free, all the things that were wrong he was trying, and he decides, hey, I'm going to do the thing that I was reluctant to do before. I'm going to my hometown. Ottawa, Kansas, meets with the hometown folks, speaks at the Chamber of Commerce. He's their most famous citizen, after all. You know, he's getting some coverage, and he's still leading in a lot of polls. It's then that his recent nemesis, the Miami Herald newspaper, runs another story about him. The Hart campaign was being secretly financed by a California video producer, and a person on the payroll did free work for him, paid by the video company, but working for Hart, and unreported as a campaign contribution. This story runs not just in the Herald, but in the Des Moines Register as well. And there are other questions about the 1984 campaign debt. Was Hart just running to pay off his debt? The people are the strength of this country. I said I wanted them to debate about my candidacy. I got a fair hearing, and the people have decided. I clearly should not go forward. And so it was. Another candidate was again out of the race, this time Gary Hart's number two. I had no money, I had no organization, no infrastructure. It was, admittedly, quixotic, but I felt my issues weren't being heard. Maybe I felt it might even work. From interviews decades later, Gary Hart would regret his decision over the next decades. He'd regret everything that happened, including the Donna Rice affair and including his inability to connect to people and to connect to the press properly. As he saw over the decades, policies form by both George Bush and George Bush's son, he couldn't help but think that uh, he should have fought harder. That's his point of view. 
that a personal failing and an inability to avoid being quixotic and weird changed the policy of the United States, in, in his opinion. It's also of note that Gary Hart performs one significant service to his country after the race that almost no one knows about. And that's summoned by a congressional committee, along with Republican former Senator Warren Rudman. Hart and Rudman, early on in 2001, predict a domestic terrorist attack on U.S. soil. Tonight, Super Tuesday, CBS News coverage of Campaign 88 continues. Well, there was still a Democratic campaign to resolve. On the surface, Super Tuesday, a collection of mostly Southern states voting at one time, a novel invention that we still have in some form today to give the South an extra voice in presidential elections. It's been played with, tinkered with, other states have been added or taken out over the years, but it still exists. And on some level, it's a trap for the Dukakis campaign. Northern liberal? All of these Southern states voting at once? He's a New Englander, and you have Al Gore, the senator of Tennessee, the darling of the South, that even Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton is afraid to campaign against. What do we think is going to happen here? This region's influence, this whole design, is really to get somebody who's not from Massachusetts. But it's not without a good point for Dukakis, too. For one thing, Massachusetts is actually voting on the same day as a little bit of a counter to all those southern states, as would Rhode Island. So those are going to be instant victories for regional favorite Dukakis. On top of that, it turns out the South isn't appearing so bad for his campaign. For instance, he has more money and he has more organization than all of these other campaigns. And these are when you run a bunch of states at one time, you have to have that money. You have to have that organization. Some of these states are big, Florida and Texas, where your caucus would like to stay relevant, carve out victories, are big states. You've got to spend a lot of money. The broke Gephardt campaign. He just spent all his money on Belgian endives in South Dakota. Simon, not a lot of money there. When Dukakis looked at Florida, it was truly not a southern state. Not in the Democratic primary, certainly. It was all about the condos out of the east coast of Florida. Many of them had recently transported from New York. Gephardt goes to speak at one of these big Palm Beach condos with lots of seniors. And they come out to listen to him. And everybody he sees has Dukakis hats on. But for Gephardt, the other problem was Al Gore. Without an Al Gore in the race, he could probably pick up some states here. Al Gore is, is not only 
the Southern favorite. He's also attacking. He doesn't agree with Gephardt's trade fairness campaign one bit. Protectionism is, again, a retreat to have an automatic formula that triggers a trade war, Gore said in a Dallas Super Tuesday debate. And Gore had a certain freshness about him as we enter the Super Tuesday contest because the media is talking about him in relation to this event and also because he kind of skipped Iowa. I'm going to keep myself fresh for the later rounds and not use myself up campaigning in all the 99 counties of that state. And Gephardt's a particular target. Something else. Unlike Iowa, where every person Gephardt met and shook hands with was a voter, where he could use his walking around and talking strategy. In the South, the race was too big, vast, multiple states, a lot of hotels and airports. Sure, on election night, Super Tuesday night, you're going to see all those states line up in different colors and everything. What you have to understand is what a candidate sees in this kind of a race is hotels and airports. He'd go to these places and shake hands, and no one knew who he was or why he was there. In Iowa, everyone knew why Gephardt was there. The, the, the presidential election was important. Not in these states. He didn't know if a hand he was shaking would ever even know what a primary is. That wasn't the real problem. Nothing could compare to the ad that Gephardt would see when he flicked on his TV. An ad of a red-haired person who seemed to look a lot like him doing somersaults. Moving from one position to another. The Gephardt record, Reaganomics, minimum wage, you know where Michael Dukakis stands. But Richard Gephardt, he's still up in the air. Wow, they really got a good actor. That does look like me. Used to one-on-one -on -one campaigning, a lot of free media, being in the Iowa newspapers, Gephardt couldn't respond as well to a TV attack. Because he had no money to counter with his own. Now, Super Tuesday is important for another candidate on the Democratic side, and that's Jesse Jackson. This fight between Gore, Dukakis, and Gephardt, it's delightful. It could, to some degree, allow him to remain above the fray. Super Tuesday would be a chance to shine. It would be foolish for any of the campaigns to attack him. He urged the candidates, we can't do this. The Republicans will win. All the while, Jesse Jackson showing that he has a campaign. In other words, you know, in 84, they didn't think that he'd win any primary states, and he does. There are large African-American populations in most of the Deep South states. And as long as they believe Jesse has a chance of winning, they're going to vote for him. He does this media event in Atlanta where he's speaking like a reverend. He tours the South, preaching about healing, about the new South. He meets with Selma Mayor Joe Smitherman, the same mayor who tried to arrest him in 1965. With this approach, Jackson would win Georgia. He'd win Louisiana, Mississippi, and Virginia and Alabama, completely exceeding expectations. On this day, he comes out as a winner. But because of expectations, so does Michael Dukakis. Dukakis wins Massachusetts, but he also wins Texas and Florida. Gore also looks pretty good. Gore, who hadn't won anything up until now, wins his home state of Tennessee and also Kentucky, North Carolina, Oklahoma, and Nevada. Richard Gephardt will have to settle for his home state of Missouri. Simon gets nothing. To some degree, it was Jackson's moment, no doubt, but it was also Dukakis's moment. 
He got a double bang, said one analyst of the race. And it's not just about delegates or even momentum, but according to his advisors, it's showing that he can play in the South. Now, what does that mean, playing in the South? When you're talking about the Democratic primary of 1988 and Super Tuesday, news coverage at the time didn't show this enough. But the turnout, the electorate for 1988 in Super Tuesday in the southern states was 35% liberal, where the electorate itself in 1988 was 17% identified that way. None of this was reported on that day. What was important? That Gephardt won only his home state. We got everything we wanted, a Dukakis advisor said. Florida, Texas, and Gephardt dead. Reporting from CBS News election headquarters in New York, here is Dan Rather. Now with George Bush, uh, frankly, you don't even need your glasses to see this board. George Bush has won everything, every place. On Super Tuesday, Bush won 578 of the 707 delegates available. Dole won no states. Bush said, I will now be the president of the United States. Pat Robertson wins only the state of Washington. Dole tried to argue that he was the more electable. Sure, Bush is winning the primaries. I get it. I'm the more electable. You may want Bush, but he won't be president at the end of the day because he can't beat Democrats. I can. The problem for Dole is making this electability argument, which is always a problem for electability arguments. You're going to see it in lots of other races. You might see it in the race we have this year. It's undermined by a poll of voters. So if you're making that electability argument, it's only as good as the latest polls. There's a poll of GOP voters that said 70% thought Bush would win in November. So while Dole is citing head-to-head polls, which are showing Bush losing to a Democrat, the Bush campaign is touting these, hey, Republicans think we can win. What's Dole talking about? Everything shifts to Illinois. Not normally that important of a primary. It could be. This time it is. On the Democratic side, there's a little blip of something going on that may be the result of sending a few boxes and and a a quick-thinking campaign manager. In Anchorage, Alaska, Jesse Jackson finished first in Alaska's Democratic precinct caucuses, posting a narrow victory over Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis in a non-binding preference poll announced today. With about 90% of Alaska's 442 precincts reporting, Jackson claimed 872 delegates, 35% of the total, due to caucuses, 31%. Close third was uncommitted, and then Al Gore finished a distant fourth with 2%. Henry Lancaster, who was coordinating the Jackson campaign in Atlanta, said that Alaska had just a 3% black population, yet Jesse Jackson won. And his appeal there came from the anti-drug and economic issues that he had been voicing that the other candidates hadn't. This state has a lot of working class people who come from the South and the Midwest and the Northwest and move to Alaska. In down times, people are looking for solutions. Bob Speed of the Alaska Party said the other campaigns were just apathetic up here. But it all may come to a simple thing. A quick-thinking Jackson staffer thought to send pins a box of Jesse Jackson pins and brochures to Alaska. Their campaign had them, the others didn't. It's almost insignificant in terms of Democratic delegate totals, but it means everything to Jesse Jackson. Alaska gave Jackson an important talking point. There's no ghettos in Alaska, only igloos. Not very PC, but it got snickers at the time, and believe it or not, was a soundbite way of making that point. Stop saying I'm just a black candidate. Stop saying I can't win in states. I'm a progressive. I can win anywhere. 
Whites all over the country have opened their hearts to me. They know there has been this separation, and now they're willing to say, let's call it even. Years from now, 20 years after Jackson makes these comments, and no one can know this, the first African-American president is going to be elected. There'll be an open question at that time. There's still an open question. How much of that is responsible? Could a figure named Barack Obama just ran anyway, even if there'd been no Jackson campaign? Certainly the supporters of Jesse Jackson don't think so. Despite the Alaska win, there's this side debate that keeps creeping up with Jesse Jackson, which, which Jesse Jackson will find irritating and will say so. Already there are news stories about what does Jesse Jackson want? Night News Service. A Dukakis aide says the campaign wants to maintain favorable relations with Jesse Jackson and his campaign and keep the lines of communication open, assuming we go to the convention in a position to seize the nomination. We can be ready to discuss what Jesse wants. But what Jesse wanted was a nomination. I am not gathering delegates to bring to the big boys. Throughout 1988, no one would ever fully believe this. Uh, South Africa is going to have change. It's going to come either peacefully it's going to, or it's going to come violently. The United States ought to be on the side of pushing for that peaceful change. There's a moment in one of the debates where the advisors want Senator Paul Simon to keep a tie, a plain old regular long tie that we all might wear in his pocket. And you know that Paul Simon, we've talked about it, was famous for wearing his bow tie, classic look. But he'd bring this long tie, keep it in his pocket, and whenever there's a moment, to pull it out. Like, if we can cut the deficit with those kind of financial gimmicks, I'll wear this tie. Known for his bow ties, it would be a funny soundbite moment. It would get on the news. But the senator spent the whole debate tie in pocket. I just couldn't do it. It was Senator Simon's lone act of resistance against the new television politics, soundbite politics. You're here not just to live and pile up money or fame or whatever for yourself. You're here to serve others. Some are now asking, as the campaign reached Illinois, just they had asked about Jackson, why is he running? They're asking it about Simon. Why is this guy, who hasn't won any states yet, came in second in Iowa, is not going to be the nominee? Why are you, you have no chance of winning. Why are you running? I am going to win Illinois, he said. Who cares? That's your home state. Is this about you just wanting to send delegates to a convention, give them the chance to see Atlanta? No, he responds. Reporters, it would never be worth it to do that. Look at the situation, Simon says. Jesse Jackson's got almost as many delegates as Dukakis. Gephardt's got some. Gore's got some. I've got a few. I'm going to win Illinois and get more. The Democratic Party does not have a nominee, but it might have a priest. He doesn't use this word. But what he means is, I'm going to go to the convention and be a deal maker. And I can do that. I've done that before. And my voters in Illinois, the case I'm making here, is send me to the convention to be the deal maker. And in that process, there's a chance that I can be the nominee. In other words, I'm still running for president, but in this way. It sounds plausible. Dukakis has to throw water on that. He doesn't want Simon to get this win. 
He's leading a cabal, they say of Simon. He's pushing a brokered democratic convention. He's pushing disunity in the party. The caucus is the only choice. Get this wrapped up. This is going to be competitive in Illinois because Jackson is also from here. His Operation Push is based out of Chicago. Chicago is voter-rich. He thinks he can win, too. Both Dukakis and Jackson are a little mad at Simon. Gore is in a quandary in all this. He can't afford not to run in Illinois. He has to compete here. But he can't afford to run in Illinois either because he knows he's going to lose. These guys all have stakes in the game. Dukakis is kind of the establishment candidate now. Simon's from here. Jackson's from here. What's Gore going to do? He needs a win. At least come in second in a northern state to keep staying in the game and follow up on his Super Tuesday moment. So reluctantly, he burns cash in Illinois. His message here is same as Bob Dole. Electability. Do you want to run another liberal? We've gotten blown out twice in five elections. 49 of 50 states. Candidates bicker. We don't need a national custodian or a manager, Paul Simon says, of Mike Dukakis. We need a leader. Al Gore says Dukakis's foreign policy stands for pulling back from the rest of the world. He's timid for standing up for American values. Dukakis runs in Illinois on being the winner already. Inevitability. There's an inside baseball funding debate as campaign manager Susan Estrich, who had taken over from John Sasso after his mistake with the Biden videotape, Estrich makes the decision to hold funding, to not spend in Illinois, hold it for later in the game when Dukakis will need it the most. The result of this, Jesse Jackson versus Simon in Illinois, as it turns out. Jackson gets 32% of the vote. He's popular. It's his second home state, South Carolina, is where he was born. But Jackson is hurt because he had taken on the Chicago politics machine in the past. And they didn't like him. They were taking his revenge in the form of Simon. Senator Paul Simon gets 43%, his first, and what will be his only win in the 1988 election. Dukakis gets just 16% and is embarrassed by the result. He's going to have trouble with the inevitability argument. How can you be a winner when you're getting 16% in a big state that's a swing state in the election, could go Republican or Democrat? It's not Michael the Inevitable anymore, Gephardt says, trying to make the best of his paltry showing. He didn't win anything recently, but Gephardt can shake the tree now a bit and see what happens. If Michael Dukakis falls, now Gephardt could possibly get back in it. George Bush has not won yet, Pat Robertson said in Springfield, Illinois, yet it sure felt otherwise. Robertson would get just 17 delegates on Super Tuesday in the theoretical bastion of people that should be supporting a religious candidate. He got a tenth of what Bush got. But it's still a ball game. Bush hasn't beaten me in the Midwest yet. For non-politician, Pat Robertson was proving pretty good with spin. Meanwhile, the man he shared the Iowa glory with just a few weeks ago, Bob Dole said he was hanging on by our fingernails. He says to one reporter, I don't know how I can get the attention of voters without jumping out of a 40-story window at this point. He calls for a debate. I dare George Bush to have a debate with me. George Bush says to reporters that he tried that with Ronald Reagan, famously referring to his bad performance in the Nashua, New Hampshire debate in 1980. I may be older, but I'm a lot smarter too. He's actually making a joke that works 
while ducking the debate. Dole borrows money from his Senate re-election fund. William Brock, his campaign chairman, wanted a dignified statesman's speech before Illinois to go out on a good note. No, Bob Dole says, I'm going down swinging. There was a slight hope that Dole himself pushed to the media that Robert McFarlane's plea deal on withholding information from Congress would hurt Bush, and that would reignite the Iran-Contra story again and bring up Dole. But it did not. And Bush beats Dole in Illinois 56 to 36 percent. Illinois is probably the most typical of American states, said Jim Thompson, Illinois governor and a Bush supporter. I think it's the end of talk about Dole's electability. That was three states, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Illinois, where Bush had the governors and where Dole had the senators, and the governors mattered more in those primaries, at least in the 80s. The final battle, to the extent it was for the Republicans at all, was in Wisconsin. Dole hopes to keep something, maybe an Iran-Contra revelation that would shake up things. Even he started predicting a Bush win now. Then Bush got Kemp's endorsement. Polls show Bush would beat Dole 2-1 to one in Wisconsin. Rather than take the loss, Bob Dole dropped out. His campaign manager told Robert Flieger in his book, Brutal Campaign, Our failure to react to that Senator Straddle ad in New Hampshire sealed our fate. Pennsylvania, with no opponents, Bush got enough delegates to win the nomination of his party. And as a GOP consultant observed, the good news is Bush won the nomination. The bad news is he's now sitting duck George. There's no reason to report on him anymore, while Democrats can beat him up. But they'd have to deal with beating up each other a bit first. For the Democrats, battleground is Michigan. And Dukakis would like to avoid it being a battle. So before Michigan, he attempts to get a crowning. How's he going to do that? If you don't have a primary going on, try getting a big block of endorsement. So the party's getting antsy. Bush is pretty much the nominee. Who's going to be the Democrats' nominee to challenge Vice President Bush? So Susan Estridge wants cement to get some future super delegates, big names who are going to have a vote at the convention. She finds it in the form of Chris Dodd, senator from Connecticut. Dodd's position is, I want something wrapped up. Dukakis is the best we have. We can keep talking about Cuomo possibly getting in, uh, Bradley getting in. Dukakis is the best we have. They indeed get Bill Bradley. They get Patrick Leahy of Vermont, a couple other senators who feel the same way. Dukakis is our choice. He also has Coleman Young the mayor of Detroit, and a leader among Detroit African-Americans. This is going to be a counter to Jackson. All this is looking pretty good for the caucus campaign as they hit Michigan. Now, Michigan is an auto-working state, a very blue-collar, heavy union state, particularly in the Democratic Party. Richard Gephardt thinks he has a chance. And he has a little bit of a head start because he skipped campaigning in Illinois. He's waiting here. He talked about the media ignoring plant closing, job layoffs. The caucus decides to counter this by supporting a trade ban proposed by Donald Regal. It's the first kind of anti-free trade anything that the caucus has supported. It's Gephardt-like, and it's rightly called out as a flip-flop. But the Dukakis campaign thinks, 
With all of this, they've managed the state effectively. The campaign polls show Dukakis with a double-digit lead here. A win here pretty much puts the nomination in the bank. But that's polls. Polls by telephone. People calling up saying, who are you going to vote for? Oh, I think the name that I hear a lot is Dukakis. They learned from Coleman Young that even though I'm for you, Governor, and here I am at this event, all across the city of Detroit, the whole city's for Jesse. Coleman Young is now feeling the heat. You're mayor, and you haven't endorsed Jesse Jackson. Michigan is also a caucus. So I've, I've referred to it as a primary, and I, I should correct that. It was a caucus in this year, and it helps to bring out more passionate voters. Jackson told struggling auto workers and wage earners he would fight the corporations that closed their factories. It was an electric message here. Turnout is incredible, much higher than in 1980 or 84. And that turnout is for Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson wins the state with 54%, and Dukakis just 29%. The Michigan campaign was about message, authenticity, the soul. Flesh and, blood Flesh and blood versus nuts, versus nuts and, bolts. and bolts. Gephardt, for all his blue-collar message, gets 16%. And now has to say, I'll meet with my family and I'll decide. Jackson wins here with a huge voter turnout. But it's not just Detroit. There's other areas. Ann Arbor, Kalamazoo, Battle Creek. These are not African-American enclaves. He's making this point. Very important for him to make this point. Here's the New York Times. Mr. Dukakis had hoped that a clear-cut victory in the state would prove his appeal to blue-collar workers, a group critical to Democratic chances in the fall, and reestablish him as a front-runner, a distinction he lost when he ran third last week beyond a pair of favorite sons in Illinois. Instead, the Michigan voters left the race in a bigger muddle than before, with Mr. Dukakis hurt by two straight disappointments in northern industrial states, and Mr. Jackson buoyed by an unexpected victory. And the shape of the contest is now hard to discern. Here's what Newsweek said of Dukakis. From shoe-in to walking wounded on a single night in Michigan. This was not a great night flying back from Detroit, Dukakis would say in a later interview. There's questions now and a side debate. Sure, 54% impressive in the Michigan primary. But can he win? Susan Estridge, who is the campaign messenger for Dukakis, says... We're not afraid of being beat by Jackson, she tells reporters kind of on a background. We're not afraid of being beat by Jesse Jackson. That's not what it is. It's not Jackson Dukakis' campaign is afraid of. But if we allow Jackson to win too much, some unknown person, they're going to find another campaign, they're going to find another candidate. And if we can't lock this thing up, that's what's going to be our downfall. The attack on Jackson that everyone had held off from now begins. The way it's done, electability. Jackson campaign is watching voters interviewed by the press. I agree with Jackson, but I think Dukakis can win. This is it. There's one state now that can determine everything. It's a democratic state, large group of African Americans. It also has suburban and rural areas, and it has large urban areas. The New York presidential primary today, the one that could settle the race for the Democratic nomination. New York will become high noon for Democrats.
It's the Empire State. The most cameras per square inch of any media market, and Dukakis leads going into it. He's just won a quickie in neighboring Connecticut, so if Dukakis now wins New York, seals the deal, erases Michigan. No one thinks that he's generating any excitement. Good morning. Appreciate your help. Thank you. Good morning. Look at Michigan. Look at what happened there. When the real voters come out, they don't like this guy. When If Jesse wins New York, he can now make the case that he's the candidate for the Democratic Party nomination. Good to see you, friend. Need your support. And he's just like anybody else. I mean, it's a shame that anyone would have to make that case. Like, I have delegates, I should be in the running. Good to see you, friend. Need your support. But it's 1988, and Jackson does. But win New York, and that helps that argument quite a bit. It's now, take me seriously. There are 13 contests after New York, and Jackson will win D.C. Jackson Wynn may also sour people on Dukakis. He's no longer leader. He's the leader pretend. And what about the third person in the race, Al Gore? Well, a win by the Tennessee senator in the Empire State is improbable. But that just means that if he was actually to win it, it's a huge upset. Huge payoff from that propels him into a real contest for the nomination. That's an earthquake. So he's got to try for that. Uh, you know, the Republican Party chairs uh, all across the South are the ones that are pushing that line. They had a big strategy meeting a few weeks ago. And, and his pitch is not, love me, New York. It's, I can win. Electability. Decided that their top priority in 1988 uh, had to be to stop Al Gore. Al Gore says, you know who the Republicans don't want to be the presidential nominee? Me. Even a second place in New York, would be shocking enough to keep Al Gore going. So really, in New York, right now, everybody's got a reason to play. The latest ABC News Washington Post tracking poll gives Michael Dukakis a small lead, but it's within the poll's margin of error, and it was a much greater lead in Michigan. Phrased in political consultants speak, Jackson wins New York on turnout, Gore wins New York on electability, Dukakis wins New York by default. But Dukakis doesn't want to chance that. He's going to spend a lot of money here. Two million dollars, his campaign brags. And he searches for that big endorsement that can turn the race around. Dukakis hopes for New York Governor Mario Cuomo's endorsement, but it's not coming immediately. He's talking with the governor's office. It was so easy to get phone calls returned when they had been buddies on the Democratic Governor Association. Now. Not so easy. Here's the New York Times. Before the Michigan caucuses, friends and advisors to the governor had predicted he would endorse Governor Michael Dukakis of Massachusetts, his fellow governor, and that such an endorsement, along with victories in Michigan, in Connecticut, and in Wisconsin, and then New York, would make Dukakis inevitable. But it doesn't happen. 
And the New York Times says, however, a Cuomo political advisor said yesterday he would suggest Mr. Cuomo take a deep breath and hold off on an endorsement until after Wisconsin. Well, Wisconsin came and went, and Mario was silent. Well, New York has always been split in its power base in the Democratic Party because you've got a governor, but you've also got the most visible and powerful mayor in the country. And usually they're elected by slightly different sets of people that do overlap a bit. Mike and Kitty Dukakis then go to Gracie Mansion to seek out New York City's feisty mayor, Ed Koch. Ed Koch is going to control a lot of the Democratic Party in New York City. He's a big mayor at this time. He's a big presence even in the country at this time. He represents, he's the personification of the Big Apple. I want to make it very clear. I'm very biased. I don't like him. His personality is so big that he can take on other big personalities at the time. Here's him getting into a bicker fest with Donald Trump. Uh, I find those uh, ads uh, ridiculous. He spent $100,000 for self-advertisements. Who's really interested in his foreign policy? Anybody? Maybe Mrs. Trump. Ed Koch has been a disaster as a mayor. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. By way of update, nothing ever really happened with the Trump campaign for president in 1988. Ed Koch greets Mike and Kitty. He serves them his favorite chocolate chip cookies. These are the same ones I gave to Mother Teresa, Koch says. And Dukakis talks with the mayor for 40 minutes. That sounds good. The pitch that Dukakis makes is, I'm a winner. You want to be on my side. Koch is polite. The cookies are yummy. But it doesn't seem to be closing. Koch asks Dukakis about Jesse Jackson. Koch doesn't like his policy on the Palestine Liberation Organization, nor his comments about New York. And he thinks maybe Jews and other supporters of Israel should vote for him. they got to be crazy. He's already on record of saying that any Jew in New York would have to be crazy to vote for Jesse Jackson. To Dukakis' response, Look, Ed, I disagree with him on the Middle East, but uh, treat him with respect. Aides to Dukakis will tell reporters later, Ed Koch doesn't react warmly to that whole respect thing from Dukakis. He's bringing in a lot of voters, Ed. Something to think about. Kitty even chimes in. Ed, if you want to go with a winner, go with this guy, referring to her husband. But for Koch, it's, well, thanks for coming and all of that. And the Dukakis team, it's a little cold, but the Dukakis team figures they're going to get his endorsement. He's not going to endorse Jackson. And Jackson is probably, outside of Koch, a very well-known figure now in New York City. This is a place where African-American voters are numerous and an important part of the primary electorate. Here's New York Times suggesting that Mario Cuomo, the governor of New York, is not out of this yet. Another prize in the state is the endorsement of Governor Cuomo, who controls the party apparatus. In a telephone interview from Albany yesterday, the governor said he did not know what effect the Jackson victory in Michigan would have on the New York primary. But he adds this mysterious line, nor should anyone be embarrassed to conclude that they don't know. Wait, what? It's so Cuomo-esque. The Hamlet on the Hudson. They shouldn't be embarrassed to conclude that they don't know the effect of the Michigan 
victory that Jackson had on the race in New York. What is he thinking? Well, the New York Times suggests they know, possibly, it opens up his emergence as a possible late starter in the presidential race. It's been a tantalizing possibility for some Democrats. Paul Bogret, the Dukakis campaign manager in New York, tries to put the best face on what he admits is a serious setback in Michigan coming into New York. Okay, we lost. Now it's us versus Jackson, and it's going to get settled in this city. It's a two-man race. Gore is not a factor. Polls were showing Gore at 5%. But Gore thought he was a factor. He had some money, and well-known New York campaign consultant David Garth, who would work for Giuliani later on. Big ads. Still, Dukakis kept the two-man race story. As long as they could do that, it's Dukakis versus Jackson. Dukakis is going to beat Jackson. That's the strategy. Don't lick your chops too soon, Al Gore says to Dukakis in one of the several debates they'll have in New York. As the man down, Gore has to attack harder here. And he settles on a position which is more hardline than Reagan's policy, that mirrors Israeli Likud party prime minister Yitzhak Shamir. Reagan, newspapers have revealed, has begun discussions through intermediaries, not direct, it's not like direct, but through intermediaries with the PLO. They're going to announce this officially after this election is totally over, after the primaries and the general in December 1988 that the announcement will be made. But people kind of know. And people know that things are opening up in the Middle East. Gore takes a position that's more hardline than the Reagan administration then. And he says he disagrees with both Jackson and Dukakis on the issue of an independent state for Palestinians, saying Dukakis had sounded a note of enthusiasm about such a prospect. And he completely disagrees with Jackson for openly advocating such a state. Jackson's position is... There needs to be talking. There needs to be movement towards a two-state. We can guarantee secure borders. We cannot ensure tranquility so long as there is, he uses the word, occupation. Dukakis asserts that he's not expressing enthusiasm for any Palestinian state. He just expressed support that the president was finally showing leadership in some area. Bagore also attacks on attacking and the candidates attack each other on who they're attacking, or not attacking, more to the point. He's scared to death, Al Gore says of Mike Dukakis. In a brief with reporters, he points with a grin to a newspaper article in which Governor Mike Dukakis refused to explain why he would make a better president than Reverend Jesse Jackson. He's scared to death he'll be misinterpreted, Gore says. He's very uneasy with the whole subject. It's just ludicrous. It's wrong, Gore argues, and it might even be low-key racist. The term that he uses is it might even be a subtle form of racism. You can't excuse Jesse Jackson, Gore argues, from criticism because of the color of his skin. I don't. It seems like Mike Dukakis does. That he excuses him from criticism because he is black and because he's fearful of alienating those voters that he'd need in a general election. Dukakis ignores Gore. Who's he to say who I'm attacking? Why is that a test of somebody's presidential qualities, Dukakis says. I'm not criticizing Jesse because he's not criticizing me. For Jackson, it was almost an honor to be attacked. 
I'm just happy to be one of the big dogs now, Jackson said. For Jackson, here's the deal you have to look at. And this is what makes 1988 a realistic possibility, as crazy as it might sound, for Jackson to become Democrat's nominee. With New York, he sets up California. And it comes down to California Speaker of the House, Willie Brown, very powerful figure in that state. Now, a supporter of Jesse Jackson. It doesn't fully come down to Willie Brown, but in a way it does. If Jackson can win New York, he then goes to the next piece of the puzzle. And the next big state is going to be California. Willie Brown is an establishment African-American politician. He didn't back Jackson in 84. And no matter how hard Jesse tried, how many phone calls he made, he barely even came on board in 1988. But eventually, he was persuaded. Now, he's a supporter said the Washington Post. Willie Brown has helped Jackson raise $1 million in California and some $4.5 million overall, making his campaign real and outfitting Jackson with some longtime D.C. consultants, getting him into big donor and direct mail fundraising to augment the church-style past-the-collection plate appeals that Jackson funded his 1984 campaign on and still continues to make. On a good day, Jackson will raise 10000 through that kind of personal fundraising. The Washington Post talks about campaign manager Jerry Austin. Professional campaign manager. He has history with helping Richard Celeste, the Democratic governor of Ohio. Now he's running a very scrappy campaign. Austin describes the angles he played to get a good rate on a DC-9 jet that he hired for Jackson. And he loves telling how a television station manager in Puerto Rico slipped him 10 commercial spots for the price of four because he liked Jesse. But when the campaign first started, there's problems like simple things like when reporters come on the campaign plane, you've got to bill those news organizations. They actually have to pay for their reporters to be on the plane. And then in turn, you have to feed these reporters. The campaign seemed to have problems with both of these things. So the first thing is they never get the invoices out to the various news organizations. So that's just a deficit. They're, they're not getting the money in. The Washington Post jokes, as the time of writing this article, we still don't have the invoice for our reporter on the plane. At the same time, you know, those reporters, it's the press. You're supposed to treat them nice. That means feeding them, right? There's barely anything to eat on the Jackson campaign plane. People complain. There's actually a joke petition that goes around where the reporters are going to go on a hunger strike because there's no food, and Jackson signs it himself and hands it to campaign manager Austin. They get the problem taken care of. There's more old hands. Burt Lance, if you remember the Carter series, we talked about him. He got involved in that banking scandal. He's helping Jackson with political and economic advice. He's not flying around in the plane, but he's available on a telephone basis. Anything, you know, somebody's getting into some financial terms or budget terms and you need help, call Bird. Mark Stites, picked up from Gary Hart's 1988 presidential campaign, advises on domestic policy. Robert Bursage from the Institute for Policy Studies serves as Jackson's foreign policy advisor. There's one advantage Jackson has as well, the candidate has been an organizer himself. So when it comes to logistics, when it comes to moving around, it's Jackson teaching his staffers logistics, not the other way around, said the Washington Post. 
At the end of the frenetic Pittsburgh to Cleveland, New York day, as the motorcade prepared for its last trip to the airport, Jackson gathered his staff around him in the parking lot and lectured them softly. He was telling us, one aide said, what we did right and what we did wrong. There are a couple of debates before New York votes, and they are interesting. Really big issues, and some are still issues today, so I, I enjoyed listening to Gore, Dukakis, and Jackson talk, and I, I believe there were three different debates. At the Newsday debate, uh, Jackson is asked about what he'd do about the drug problem. We have to start at the source, he says. The countries where they're growing drugs, cities cannot stop the flow of drugs. I want to have a summit. Strengthen our border patrol. Also, a judicial system that will adjust. It's a mistake to focus on the consumer. Gore, having bashed the heck out of Jesse on foreign policy, especially the Palestinian state, is looking for a place to be not so mean to him. Well, first of all, I have to say, Jesse has provided leadership on this issue. In terms of my own plan, I'd like to appoint a cabinet-level coordinator. I'd like to use the military to help intercept planes. Dukakis also seeks to be cheery. I want to add to Jesse and Al's ideas. If we are uh, providing money with drug-running Panamanian dictators or Honduran military, it's the Reagan administration who itself can't say no to drugs. The question now turns to Dukakis. He's a governor. We've had... Two governors as presidents, the moderator says. One was to paraphrase, I think he's talking about Carter, overly simplistic on a humanitarian foreign policy. The other one, probably overly simplistic on a harsher view of the world. Now changing with Gorbachev and the USSR. With your limited experience on foreign policy, Governor, how are you going to run the foreign policy of the United States? And Dukakis says, if you want the fellow in the race with the longest career in foreign policy, that's George Bush. But he's also the guy who sat next to the president and did nothing on Iran. He supported Marcos. It's not how much time you spend in Washington. It's your values. It's what you're going to do. Then he says, great governors, uh, TR, FDR, Woodrow Wilson, went on to be international leaders. I think the next president will have an extra opportunity to make real progress. Gore chimes in here. He can't allow to cede this ground because as a senator, he has foreign policy experience. Well, with due respect to Governor Dukakis, FDR, TR, had some prior experience before they served as governors. Wilson is not looked back on as a sterling success. In fact, he had a serious misunderstanding and he calls the League of Nations a debacle. Actually, he says debacle. Dukakis doesn't answer. Jackson says, the one thing we need is to have the skill. The second thing is to have the vision of the world as it is. Now the tough question is asked of Gore. Are you a regional candidate with 400 delegates? You haven't broken into double digits here in New York. Given you're not likely to win, why are you running? Is your campaign effectively being used to bar a nomination of another one of the candidates? They're talking about Jackson. Let me begin by challenging your premise. It's not regional. I've won two contests in Nevada and Wyoming, outside the South. Polls, those same polls, noted that I was only going to carry one state on Super Tuesday. I carried seven. I think 
you need to stop asking what the polls are going to say and ask who should be president. Jackson has now asked his tough question about associating himself with Louis Farrakhan, who then made some anti-Semitic comments or about his comment about Jaime Town describing New York, about the Arafat embrace. Jackson points out, we're human. People forgive and redeem and then move on. Reagan laid a wreath at Bitburg, where SS soldiers were buried. I condemned him for that. I challenged Reagan on human rights for Jews. People remember what they choose to remember. Also, Jackson says about his meeting with PLO chief Arafat, not only did I meet with him, but I challenged him to change his course. I challenged him that he needed to say that Israel had a right to exist with secure borders. Leadership must do a difficult thing, not choose sides, but pull sides together. Gore responds, I would like to comment on it if we're going to have a healthy dialogue. We've got to draw a distinction between past controversies and present controversies. I've never brought up Reverend Jackson's comments on Jaime Town because he apologized and said it was a mistake. He issued a statement separating himself from Farrakhan, and that was pretty clear. So Al Gore, in an odd way here, is defending Jackson on some of these attacks, but then saying, on a Palestinian state, that's where we disagree. Dukakis then adds his response to this question, which might be accused of kind of being too much above the fray and saying nothing. We're going to have to disagree. In the last analysis, the people in New York have to look at us and see who has the experience. Judge us. And uh, we'll have a good solid result on Tuesday. Dukakis is definitely going to pick up a charge during this New York primary that he played it safe. Not playing safe. Jesse Jackson explains his idea of a Palestinian state, an issue that caused a brouhaha. It's not going to just happen instantly, he assures nervous New Yorkers. I've talked about a UN or US supervision. I've talked about a transition period. Camp David, that agreement left some time for transition for Egypt and Israel for the agreement to take place. We have to take the time here. I support a sovereign people, a homeland, a place to exist. I just have to bring up that we are talking about events and a debate that occurred in 1988. And while there has been changes in movement in different ways on the issue, it's the same issue, it's the same place we're talking about, and it's 2024, we're headed into an election where this could be an issue as well. Gore jumps in. The problem with creating a Palestinian state, traditionally independent states have had the right to arm, to enter alliances. They could be alliances with our enemies or the enemies of Israel. And the proximity of that area is why it's such a dangerous proposal. Gore's going to be vice president in an administration that's going to have the Oslo agreements five years from these words. But I, I like to point it out for historical purposes. I'm not challenging him. Because events also changed. Oslo brought people to the table and Arafat changed his commitments. The caucus kicks the ball a bit. The fundamental problem remains here. We have not had an Arab leader who can stand up and say Israel has a right to exist like Sadat did and prepare to go forward with negotiations. The next president has to work to find that next Sadat. At a different debate, welfare reform is a topic. 
Dukakis said, here there's no mystery about how we help people. We're doing it in my state, investing in job training, especially for single mothers who make up the bulk of the welfare caseload and provide daycare for children. Gore then jumps in to attack him from the left. Well, if I'm not mistaken, Governor Dukakis, just in the past week, you recommended very deep cuts in the programs designed to help welfare recipients. It's absolutely incorrect, Dukakis says. Well, the newspaper accounts are wrong, then. You're wrong, Dukakis shoots shoots back to the cheers of his back. It's the first attack that Dukakis has made. It's the most forceful that he gets. Well, it turns out Gore did get it wrong. Where he got this cut from, it's actually a 5% increase higher than the rate of inflation. There had been some issue of impounding monies that hadn't been spent in the last budget. Gore's staff must have read wrong. So he gets caught on that and his hand gets slapped. We've been dealing with um, the last couple of years with a um, contagious disease being a, not only an issue in health, but also in politics. That's present in this race. The AIDS issue is prominent in 1988. I support the confidentiality of testing, Jackson says. Dukakis says he supports privacy for those who may have AIDS, who are being tested for AIDS. There's an interesting question in one of the debates where Gore is asked if he or his wife or children were diagnosed with the disease, would he disclose it to the public? I've sponsored legislation for allowing the privacy of AIDS patients. I think there should be no discrimination. But would you reveal it, Senator, if it was you? I support privacy because there are a lot of fallacies about AIDS. Do you know that there are people who think you can get AIDS from shaking hands? But sir, the reporter tries for the third time, what about you? If you want to get personal, I wouldn't make that decision right now, but I would protect anybody's decision to keep that information secret. Gore went after Dukakis again when given the opportunity to question him directly. He brings up a prison reform program that Dukakis had sponsored in Massachusetts, which granted weekend passes to prisoners, including some serving life sentences for murder. As Gore noted, 11 of these convicts in the Massachusetts program failed to return, and two committed murders. If you were elected president, Governor Dukakis, would you advocate a similar program for federal penitentiaries? As the whole country would learn the next year, the U.S. already had a federal program. Reagan had supported it, but the audience didn't know that. They reacted with hoots and laughter to, would you bring this program to the federal government? Dukakis merely attacked to play to the strength of his experience as an executive. Al, the difference between me and you is, I've run a criminal justice system. You never have. Well, Michael, I must insist that you answer my question directly. Obviously not. I'm not going to bring it to the federal government. Neither Gore or Dukakis know it. But this is a significant moment in the 1980 election. Not for what happens on the stage. Because at Team Bush, the oppo research aide employed by Lee Atwater is watching all of these things. They don't know who they're going to get. Filling out three by five index cards and making notes of things the candidate says. And the aide makes a note. Prison furlough program to caucus. 
Two committed murder? Question mark. In later interviews, Dukakis would say thought absolutely nothing of Gore's attack. It was already on record that Dukakis was against the death penalty, something he felt strong as a moral issue, you know, could be used as anti-crime. So opponents were always bringing up things like this. So went the debates in New York. For a few moments in this state, not just New York City, Buffalo, Rochester, Long Island, but with, with a lot of the media attention focused on New York City on the sidewalks, in front of hot dog vendors and pretzel carts and famous establishments, the shadow of the Twin Towers at that time, still prominent, and the Empire State Building. Al, Jesse, and the Duke shake hands, duel it out, and seek that little issue that's going to be the edge in this race. And in a break from politics, Olympia Dukakis, Michael's sister, wins the Oscar for the movie Moonstruck. New York for Mike Dukakis! Let's hear it! Maybe it's a good sign of things to come. Okay, okay. I have run 24 elections, and I know what it's like to be a candidate. Out of nowhere, Mayor Ed Koch of New York City looks at the race and endorses Al Gore. I was rather shocked, Gore admitted later, but obviously I was excited. Previous to this, Gore's best endorsement in the state of New York came from a former lieutenant governor not many people knew. And it turns out that there are two things that that helped him in this. One is that Gore had David Garth. His campaign manager had connections to Koch. And also, he attacked Jesse Jackson more than Dukakis did. Koch was watching those attacks, and he didn't like Dukakis holding off popular, if edgy, maybe even a little conservative for a city while socially liberal, Koch took to Gore, walking along with Tennessee Al, taking him down Fifth Avenue, going to the Fulton Fish Market. This elevates Gore from zero to having some kind of a chance. Koch is pretty popular, and he can get media attention. Every day now, from the endorsement to the day that there's going to be voting, you're going to see Gore on the subway, visiting all sorts of places, Al and Ed. Dukakis didn't like it, but the team didn't blink. It's just like those Belgian endives. There's going to be some surprises in this race. There's going to be some gimmicks. But the win is going to be done on a straight line. It's going to be the most consistent campaign. They had more TV ads at Team Dukakis. They had better organization, better overall state endorsements. Gore's gimmick wasn't going to throw them off. At least they could keep telling themselves that. Time Magazine would later get the scoop of what went on behind the scenes. While Dukakis was eating cookies with his honor and telling him more or less to get on the train and back a winner, Gore, during his low-profile session with Koch, paid Koch more respect. He played the student. I hope, whoever you endorse, said, we could remain friends. Koch smiles. That was precisely what I had once told the former governor of New York, Hugh Carey. I know, Ed. I read your memoir. Still, despite that flattery, Gore didn't think he'd earn an endorsement. After all, it didn't work for Koch either. Carey had back Cuomo in that mayoral race long ago. 
The tailwinds were with the Duke of Massachusetts. Koch was a different type of politician. He went with his gut, and the mayor's own aides were shocked. It's useful to talk for a few seconds, and not really much more, about Senator Paul Simon, the senator from Illinois, big glasses. He is still in the race, but he has absolutely no money after Illinois. And no money in 1988, where there's no internet or websites to raise anything, no social media to put things out there, means really no messages getting out, like nothing. So he's on the ballot. That's about it. He's polling so low, he's not invited to any of those debates. He talks vaguely about a guerrilla campaign, but if it's happening, no one sees it. The only thing that Paul Simon offers is, once in a while, Governor Mario Cuomo will say something about Paul Simon's ideas about the deficit. Cuomo, it's believed, is letting Koch have the moment. He's been playing a cute game all through 1987 and in the early months of 1988, refusing to endorse anyone, even in his home state primary. Here's from Jack German and Jules Whitcover. Although he had officially taken himself out of the picture, he said recently that he would not accept a draft, Cuomo had been studiously ambiguous about his attitude towards the other candidates. The assumption of most Democratic professionals was that the New York governor would finally endorse Dukakis, fellow governor of his Northeast. Cuomo sent mixed signals. For example, sounding if at times, Paul Simon might be his choice. But Dukakis and Cuomo were talking behind the scenes through intermediary, and that being the governor's son. There was a series of conversations with Susan Estridge at the Dukakis campaign and Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo was not giving Estridge, though, a clear pathway to any kind of endorsement by his father. Andrew Cuomo said his role in meeting with Estridge was only to ask questions on his father's behalf, and that he did so with all campaigns still in the field. It's probably true, but I only have a written record that I could find of the Dukakis Cuomo talks. Whatever his purpose, the concerns raised by Cuomo were intriguing, especially the advice that they seemed to offer. In Estrich's account, the younger Cuomo asked Estrich if Dukakis might not be willing to harden his message in a pro-Israel way. For instance, um, George Schultz had his plan on the Middle East, and there was a letter written by 30 senators. Perhaps, Cuomo suggested, Dukakis might say something to effect that the letter could have been written better, perhaps more moderate language. Secondly, Andrew Cuomo wondered if Dukakis might be willing to say publicly that he would consider Jesse Jackson as a possibility for the vice presidential nomination. The Dukakis team couldn't understand this advice. You want to delight um, Jewish voters in New York, anger peace supporters, anger liberal voters that might be backing to caucus, then delight peace supporters and anger Jewish voters by saying you might consider Jackson as VP. What kind of logic was this? Estridge is confused. If he was relaying a message, his father seemed to be suggesting clearly that Dukakis jump over a cliff politically. That formula was destructive enough to make cynics wonder if Mario Cuomo was still nourishing dreams of another scenario, one with Dukakis out of it. The collapse of the frontrunner would set off a round of demands that the governor run to rescue his party. Who cares if he told a reporter he wouldn't accept a draft if the party came knocking? Per Susan Estridge, if there was a play, it didn't happen. Team Dukakis read that, and had no interest in following Andrew Cuomo's advice. 
he speaks for himself. Meanwhile, it soon became clear after a few days that Gore went from being elated that Ed Koch had endorsed him to starting to worry that Ed Koch was treating him like the sideshow, and Koch was entering the spotlight. Most press conferences where Koch and Gore were together, Koch was in front. And then Koch messed up. Jackson came under fire today from New York Mayor Ed Koch, who called Jackson a liar and said that he's unstable under stress. Koch had gone a little bit too far. Mark Green on the city council, future candidate for mayor, said, Koch is acting like the fourth candidate in the race. He's over his head here, should not have gotten involved, should have stayed out of it. Smartly, Jesse Jackson does not respond to Ed Koch's remarks at all. But the worst came later. Koch appeared on David Brinkley and said that Jackson had exaggerated his role during the death of Martin Luther King in 1968. Jesse Jackson was there in the hotel room when King was shot in the balcony. Jerry Austin, Jackson's campaign manager, now comes out and says, Koch is an idiot. This would be very harsh to say about a mayor of a city whose votes you're trying to win in any other race in any other time. He probably went too far, but almost no one's calling Austin out on this. Too many people agreed with the statement to get counter-traction. Jackson still says nothing, but he never publicly silences or disagrees with Jerry Austin. That doesn't mean that when he speaks for himself, that he is uh, that he is saying what I feel. Gore has to come out now and say that he's not aligned with those comments that Koch was speaking for himself. He speaks for himself. You know... You can come up with all the political recipes and all the swirling events that make each election a little unique from each other, right? Uh, Despite what all the prognosticators say. But at the end of the day, you come to an election day and there's a vote. And when that happened in New York, Dukakis wins the primary. He polls 51% of the vote to 37% for Jackson. Gore gets 10%. So Gore was able to improve uh, 5% from the polls with the Ed Koch endorsement. But for him, it's the end of the row. And he'll announce that the race is over. Dukakis is elated. I love New York. If I can make it here, I can make it anywhere. He even attracts some praise from Jackson because Jackson is happy that Dukakis really didn't attack him on the way to getting New York. His campaign was decent and civilized. And now, finally, Governor Mario Cuomo would endorse Dukakis for the presidency of the United States. While it's too late, really, to help Dukakis significantly, it is pretty much close to handing Dukakis the crown at this point. The race that has started in February 1987, where two candidates, significant candidates, were out of it. Before 1988, House member, senator, frontrunner, deficit fighter, quirky bow tie guy, blue-collar trade warrior, all of them, steaming in the wreckage. By the April of 1988, though Jackson would not quit, he'd roll on and see how many delegates he could get. 
But after New York, there was very little chance he was going to win California or anywhere else but D.C. It was more talk about what Jesse could get than if he could win. There would be more primaries leading up to Atlanta, but the nominee was known. It was known to the country and it was known to Republicans. You might forget there is a Republican primary, the New York Times said. New York did have still a Republican primary and Dole and Bush were on the ballot, but Dole had already given up and no one cared. Of the choice of Gore, Jackson, or Dukakis, Bush declined to say anything. We'll beat, we'll beat any one of them. We'll beat any one of them, he said. But in Republican circles, there's a lot of doubt about this. Even though they've picked a nominee, the prophetic, perhaps, words of Bob Dole are starting to ring through. Like, you may have a nominee, but do you have a president? Richard Nixon comes to visit Bush, April 1988. Nixon was tarnished, to say the least, uh, persona non grata, all through the 80s. But within Republican circles, it's totally different. You have to take Richard Nixon's meeting. He has a lot of insiders in his Rolodex. Bush meets with him. Be tougher, he tells the vice president. Be tougher, but moderate on policy. He doesn't like me, Bush said. He thinks I'm not tough enough. What's wrong with being a gentleman, Bush thinks in his diary. It's not really Nixon's opinion that's worrying George Bush, though, as he looks at the rest of the race. What worried him is he couldn't get the White House if certain numbers didn't change, and they were these numbers. One-fourth of voters that voted for Reagan now said they'd vote for Mike Dukakis. This might have been because 41% of the country were satisfied with its direction. A majority wanted something else. In March 1980, a survey showed voters preferring less government to more government, a margin of 54 to 32%. That's the Republicans' message. That's going to be Bush's message. By May 1988, this had changed. 43 to 44% effectively split down the middle on this question of more or less government, the basis of the Reagan revolution that Bush was to be part of. The vice president's own campaign polls showed him down in a hypothetical against Dukakis. And a focus group showed that participants thought Dukakis was more conservative than Bush. More conservative. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.mythehistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. There, there's a link to the Patreon. Do you want to support the show? Do you want to get little extra tidbits and things like that, little notes? You can. Patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-Y-P. Or just go to the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics website. We also have some archive episodes on that website. If you like the program, please help spread the word. 
Where can you do that? Are you on Reddit? Can you write a review, particularly on Apple Podcasts? Are you on social media? Getting one friend to listen, if they're interested, we don't want people People don't care about politics and history. That's different. But if they do, let them know about it. I want to thank you for listening. And in the next episode, we're probably going to pause a week. And in the next episode, the general election begins. And both sides believe they have the secret recipe to winning. I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.